Hello and welcome to The Food Podcast, a show where personal stories are shared through the lens of food. And on this day, through a story about my grandmother, Vivian. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. When I was a kid, my grandmother, Vivian, my mother's mother, lived on the top floor of an apartment building on the Bedford Basin. The basin is a circular body of water, five kilometers long and three kilometers wide, that begins in Bedford and stretches into the Halifax Harbor. It's 71 meters at its deepest point, which is deep enough for the Royal and Royal Canadian Navy to assemble convoys of merchant ships in the basin during the First and Second World Wars, safely tucked away from the torpedo nets in the mouth of the harbor. Vivian worked as a nurse in Halifax during the Second World War, when hundreds of ships would have dotted this view. I don't know where she lived then. Her story for me picks up in the late 1970s and onwards. When I was a kid and she lived in this apartment, and the view of the basin was calm and frozen in the winter, and dotted with sailboats and ducks in the summer. This was back when my sisters and I would run up the stairs to her apartment, and her neighbor would pop her head outside her door and call us a herd of elephants. The three flights of stairs leading up to her apartment door were covered in slip-proof plastic. Her door, top left, opened into a narrow passageway where she had just enough room to take off her black Persian lamb coat, her boots, and slip them into the closet on the right. Above the coats, there was a shelf with a hat, a small suitcase, and a basket for gloves. Like Liz from the last episode, Vivian kept a clean, organized home and only had what she needed, what brought her joy. She wouldn't have said that, this brings me joy. She was quieter about her things, about her way of life. But I know she loved what she loved. I'm writing about Vivian on this winter day because I'm thinking about thresholds. It's such a rich word filled with metaphor. A threshold is a beginning, a point of entry, or a barrier that must be crossed. Or, more literally, it's the horizontal floor piece that you cross when you move through a doorway. Or from a small hallway into an apartment. In the Old English translation of the word, it says that the sea was made the way it was so it wouldn't overstep the threshold of the earth. English word threskin is where it's believed we get the word thresh, which means to separate the edible grain from the plant or the wheat from the chaff. I wonder if this act was done on a threshing floor, and is that where we get the word threshold? There are pain thresholds, too. I have inherited a high threshold for pain passed down from my father, who chooses not to have his mouth frozen when getting a filling at the dentist. I don't go that far, but I did once think I had a stomach ache for five days and walked around at a 90-degree angle until my appendix burst. People can be negligent with their thresholds. In architecture, a threshold is an important design feature intended to blend the outside with the inside or to blend one space to another. It's a place to pause, to regroup, to breathe, then transition. 
I see Mr. Rogers entering the hallway, taking off his jacket, putting it in the closet, sitting on a bench, removing his outdoor shoes, putting on his indoor shoes, then standing up, ready for life inside this space. Compare that to any sitcom where the front door of every set opens directly into a living room. There is no space for transition. The pace is fast, dynamic, and immediate. Comedy does not ask for pause. It wants a blast of contrast. We have a threshold at our front door in the form of a glassed-in porch. It's cold in there. It's a place to stomp snow from boots, to wipe a cold nose, to find a key, to leave egg cartons for my farmer friend who delivers eggs and collects empties. It's a place to do all these things, then move inside. A small, cold room without a seat or a closet provides only a mild transition, but the environment keeps a person moving through the threshold. In the beginning of this season, I talked about how I am working on not leaning into the past or rushing into the future, but instead resting in the middle. This room is cold, yes. But it does allow for a pause, a reflection. That's the goal. To take time, then move forward. But not in a hurried way. Yesterday, I was buying kaolettes from a market shop in Halifax. Kaolettes are tiny bundles of purple kale, almost a curly Brussels sprout that I would later toss with olive oil and salt and roast in the oven. As I was paying for the kalets, I noticed that Danny, the woman at the cash, looked different. We stand opposite each other so often, frozen in the superficial. So this time I asked, what has changed? And as I said it, I realized I was looking at her face without glasses, of course. She said she had her contacts on. My glasses fog up every time I walk into a bar or a restaurant or into work, she said. And it's so awkward, especially if I'm meeting someone. I can't see. I need little wipers for my glasses. Danny and I agreed that all establishments should have a small threshold to stop, take a moment, unwind a scarf, and wipe your glasses. The threshold in Vivian's apartment was small, but it did provide a place for her to remove her winter boots after a day teaching junior high math, to hang her coat, and to place the pumps she wore teaching on a shelf, still wrapped in their cloth shoe bag, before she headed into the kitchen to probably heat up the beef soup she made on the weekend. Vivian didn't roast vegetables on sheet pans, especially not kaleettes. Kale definitely wasn't even available through the years Vivian lived in her apartment. Her food was nourishing, practical, and folded with the nostalgia of a childhood in New Brunswick along the Miramichi River, where brown beans were eaten with molasses bread and cottage cheese on Saturday nights. And fiddleheads in the spring simmered until bright green and served with vinegar, butter, and salt. And in the fall, green tomatoes fried and served on toast. And her scrambled eggs made with finely sliced onion, a splash of Tabasco, 
lemon juice, and grated aged cheddar cheese. Her food was local before anyone used that word, and it was always served with a splash of color and lots of flavor. To make my grandmother's beef and vegetable soup, place two beef shanks, about 500 grams or a pound in total, in a large pot and cover with cold water. Simmer for two hours, skimming the surface of any residue as needed. Finally, chop one onion, three celery sticks, three carrots, two parsnips, one turnip, two potatoes, and add them to the pot along with one teaspoon of salt, a quarter of a teaspoon of cracked black pepper, and one bay leaf. Continue to simmer the soup until the vegetables are tender about 45 minutes. Remove shanks with tongs and cut off any remaining meat. Return the meat to the pot and discard the bones. Serve with more salt and pepper to taste. The secret to the flavor of the soup is finely chopping the vegetables, allowing the richness of the beef stock to penetrate through the soup. Vivian would have chopped the vegetables by hand, but a food processor also works. This recipe was sent away in Vivian's suitcase when she got married. It was passed down from her mother and her mother's mother, and I can still smell Vivian's soup, and I can describe her apartment by heart. I remember my stocking feet padding across the carpet that stretched seamlessly from room to room. There were no bumps, no actual thresholds between the rooms. Beyond the front door was a dining room table with a Danish light fixture suspended over top. And there was a silver tea set on a small sewing table that had a bench that fit perfectly under the table. On the underside of the bench, on the flat, smooth wood, my mom had sketched her teachers sitting with their legs crossed, wearing pencil skirts. My mom says she was sneaking sketches everywhere in grade six even the underside of benches. I remember the sofa against the wall, a creamy white that suited the sunshine, with two wicker chairs on either side of the window, and a rocking chair with my Aunt Sandra's weaving hanging over the back, and a teak shelving unit with books, a record player that was later replaced by a CD player, and a Royal Dalton figurine, the one of a woman holding balloons, my sister Sally touched that woman and her balloons every time we visited. It was her routine. I remember the big window overlooking the Bedford Basin, two white Adirondacks on the lawn below, the yacht club next door, boats tied up for the winter, or tethered to buoys bobbing in the water in the summer. The old houses across the water, Andrew Cobb designs, sloping roofs and pine trees. And her guest room, linked to her bedroom by a bathroom with a blue tub and matching sink. And the small kitchen with just enough room for the sink, the oven, fridge, and a small counter with drawers and a cupboard underneath. It was a butter yellow kitchen with a wooden clock on the wall, and an accordion door that rustled when you pulled it closed. Vivian was careful with her money. She left nursing and became a teacher after she had her three daughters. 
So she lived on a teacher's salary and then a teacher's pension. But she exercised what my mom calls an economy of style. She invested in smart outfits that mixed and matched with other smart outfits. And she saved for trips with her friends to hot places. And she honored special guests by serving lobster. And she always kept a special bottle of perfume on her mahogany dresser. It was rectangular, shaped like a flask, with beveled edges, an octagon with liquid the color of citrine inside. The label, square and white, had a simple, clear text that read, Chanel. Next to the bottle was a tall jewelry box with a small glass door on the right and tiny dresser drawers on the left. Inside the door were necklaces hanging from suspended hooks that spun in a circle where a ballerina could be. Pearls, a fat gold choker that articulated like a snake, a golden owl on a chain twirling to Lara's theme. I remember a small matching mahogany telephone desk was next to the dresser. On the desk was a cream telephone. Inside the desk was a phone book and the yellow pages. The mirror above the dresser reflected the bed, the last piece of the matching bedroom set. There were two posts on either side of the headboard topped with textured pine cones pointing upward. Purple satin covered the bed, spilling over the edge like a long, silky dress. The pillows were busty, pulled tight by the purple satin. Through the window was a road beneath the train tracks. The five o'clock thundered by every evening, whistling hello, welcoming my grandmother home from a day of teaching. Beyond the bedroom, on the other side, was the view of the water. Her home held both the busy and the calm, beauty and function, budgeted and special. My older sister and I slept over in her wooden spool guest room bed, covered in a quilt. There was a cloth Anne of Green Gables doll on the shelf made by our Aunt Sandra's friend Joan Doherty. Anne carried a carpet bag filled with extra tiny clothes. She was the Anne from the beginning of the book, waiting at the train station for Matthew to pick her up. Anne now lives at my parents' house on a spare bed. Sally has the woman figurine with the balloons, and I have the fat gold necklace that articulates like a snake. I can't remember the scent of Chanel in the apartment. Vivian must have saved it for special occasions. The shape of the bottle resembles an aerial view of Place Vendôme in Paris, rectangular and faceted, strong and prominent. I wonder if she ever visited Paris. Was the bottle an escape, a gift, a memory? But I do remember the sweet floral scent of Lily of the Valley emanating from the bars of soap tucked inside her dresser drawers. Vivian died in my parents' house on a warm August night 15 years ago. She had been living there after it was clear she wasn't well enough to live alone in her apartment. 
Macular degeneration had clouded her eyes, and the chronic cough inherited from her father and his father's father was wearing her down. She stayed with my aunts a few weeks each, then settled on South Street with my parents that summer. She was 91. In those final weeks, she liked to sit outside on the back deck, feeling the warm sun on her face. She liked it when we massaged her hands with cream, working her mottled, thin flesh between our firm fingers. This routine began when she still lived in her apartment. My sister and I would visit on Thursday mornings with our toddlers in tow. They would play like puppies on the carpet in front of the picture window, and we would rub her hands with cream like real manicurists. Then we would drink coffee and tell Vivian about the juggle of work and motherhood. I was testing recipes for a vegetable cookbook, and Lee was designing renovations. The boys were three and one. Lee's daughter was two. You're doing too much, she'd say. Then she would add gems of wisdom like, make sure you know what you're having for dinner by 11 a.m. It makes late afternoon so much easier. And say no more often. Keep life simpler, but always come and visit me on Thursday morning, she'd laugh. That is non-negotiable. Sometimes she would come in the car with me while I ran errands and sit with the boys who were strapped in their car seats while I bought groceries. She said she loved these moments. She loved retirement. There was so much time and so much to enjoy. Back at my parents' house in those final weeks, we also brushed her short hair, hair that had gone a little wild after decades of having it set every Friday afternoon. I remember the shower cap she wore to protect her hair while she bathed in her apartment. There were little bath beads on the edge of the tub that I would squish between my fingers until bath oil shot into the air. Vivian loved it when we touched her hair. She would close her eyes and smile. Vivian and my grandfather Marshall divorced when my mom was 18. She was single, as far as I know, for all the years after that. Touch must have been special for someone who lived alone for 50 years. My mother noticed how dry her mother's skin had become. Vivian noticed it too. They had both been nurses and knew that this organ, the largest in the body, was dying. Her arms, her feet, her scalp were sloughing off. There was an attachment on the vacuum cleaner designed to gently comb over upholstered furniture. Run it over my head, Vivian asked one day, laughing. So we did. And she loved the suction on her head like a mother soothing a daughter's hair into a tight bun, all while cleansing her body of death and decay. Vivian's eyes could still make out shapes and colors. Her fingers filled in the gaps. She would run her hands over fabrics and pick out her clothes, those days mainly nightgowns and housecoats. Her fingertips could feel the small convex stickers on her microwave control panel, indicating where the one-minute and start buttons were located. She listened to the radio. My sister shared crossword clues out loud, and Vivian would solve the puzzle out loud in her head. And she ate the simple beef soup made by my mother, soothing and familiar. My parents were in an in-between phase of life. They were renting a flat that year. They had just sold the home my sisters and I had grown up in, 
and were contemplating a move to a small village three hours up the eastern shore. It would be a change, a big one. And in the meantime, they were living on the main floor of an Edwardian home, built in the early 1900s with strong bones, lots of south-facing light, and a hallway stretching from the front door to the kitchen in the back, with three bedrooms and a bathroom opening off the hallway. My grandmother was staying in the small middle guest room with a wooden spool bed, similar to her own guest bed. My parents were two doors down. One night, just after everyone went to bed, my mother heard her mother calling to her. Earlier that night, I held a launch party for my cookbook, simply called Vegetables. We celebrated at a restaurant on Morris Street, with the doors open so we could spill onto the sidewalk. The tables inside were covered in bouquets of pink and green lettuces, fat artichokes, curly kales, and twisting nasturtiums. My mother came for a little while while my aunt sat with Vivian, and then they switched places. I think, at some point, but I'm not sure. But I remember them there, wrapped up in a blur of celebration and color, with friends and family on the sidewalk sipping drinks and eating sweet potato quesadillas dipped in smoky red pepper dip, with the setting summer sun lining their hair with gold. It was the last book I would write in the series with my co-author Pippa Cuthbert, who was also celebrating on the other side of the world in New Zealand where she grew up. We had written seven cookbooks together, and now it was time we realized to pause and breathe and celebrate and step through towards something new. So that night, after the party was over and I was back in my own bed and my little boys in theirs, my mom heard Vivian calling to her from down the hallway. She found Vivian standing at the door of her room in her nightgown, trying to lift her bare foot over the threshold of the doorframe. It was a piece of wood, smooth from years of footsteps, dividing the bedroom and the carpeted hallway, no more than an inch in height. She had made it out of bed, but that lip was too much for her delicate, exhausted foot. Help me, Beverly, she said, reaching for my mother. Help me over the threshold. My mother took hold of her mother, wrapped her arms around her shoulders, and Vivian died right there in her arms. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of The Food Podcast. This series is edited by Abby Circatella. Our theme song, One More Night, is by Jen Grant. If you'd like to support the show, please rate and review The Food Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Or pop over and join my newsletter community, 
at lindsaycameronwilson.substack.com. Thanks again for listening. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. Wilson.